You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. According to the CDC, more than 50% of Americans will be diagnosed with a mental illness or disorder at some point in their lifetime. To say that this is an epidemic is an understatement. Right now, in recent decades, we've seen the explosion in rates of anxiety, of depression, bipolar disorder, ADHD, schizophrenia. The list truly does go on and on and on. So much so that the CDC has now stated that over 50% of our citizens will be diagnosed with a mental health disorder at some point in their lifetime. We have these multiple epidemics, and yet we have very few solutions. Now, as you know, we've talked about this on many episodes of the Model Health Show, some of the underlying components and understanding the outcomes, what we see with mental health issues being related to our diet, being related to our lifestyle practices, but really not being able to navigate our own internal psychology and oftentimes treating the symptoms of mental health issues rather than addressing the root causes. And so I wanted to put together a true masterclass with a leading authority in this field to help us to truly make a breakthrough in these mental health epidemics because I believe that we have the capacity for so much more. We have the capacity to turn the situation around and to provide our citizens with real-world, tangible, viable, effective solutions to navigate our mental health moving forward. This has never been needed more, and I'm so grateful to be able to share this powerful compilation with you today. Today, you're going to be hearing from Dr. Daniel Amen, and he's a double board-certified psychiatrist and 12-time New York Times bestselling author. He's also the founder of Amen Clinics, that is the world's largest database of brain scans for psychiatry, totaling more than 200,000 spec imaging scans on patients from over 155 countries. Now, one of the most remarkable things about Dr. Amen's work is that he's actually looking at the organ that he's treating, whereas the field of psychiatry is often diagnosing, quote, chemical imbalances based on a conversation. And so he's going to share his valuable insights into the field itself and what he's really doing to get his patients well. So again, this is really powerful and He's one of my absolute favorite people. He's been a mentor of mine for many, many years. So I'm really grateful to be able to share this compilation of really important conversations that I've had with Dr. Daniel Amen. Now, one of our collective loves, Dr. Amen and I, as far as brain supportive nutrition is green tea. And it's because green tea contains an amino acid called L-theanine. And as one of the rare nutrients that has the ability to gracefully waltz its way across the blood-brain barrier, and to increase the activity of the neurotransmitter GABA in the brain, which helps us to reduce anxiety and to make us feel more centered and more relaxed. And it's definitely helpful when we want to be more productive, right? Feeling more centered, relaxed, and focused. Now, one of the other ways that L-theanine works to improve our focus was featured in the peer-reviewed journal Brain Topography. And the researchers observed that L-theanine intake increases the frequency of our alpha brain waves, indicating reduced stress enhanced focus, and even increasing levels of creativity. The researchers noted that sipping on two to four cups per day was noted to have carried the greatest brain benefits. Now, green tea in and of itself is remarkable, but for me, 
the absolute pinnacle of green tea is Sun Goddess Matcha Green Tea from Peak Teas. It's shaded 35% longer for extra L-theanine content. And it's also crafted by a Japanese tea master. Now, there are less than 15 of these folks in the entire world. And Sun Goddess Matcha Green Tea is one of these very special teas crafted, again, by a Japanese tea master. And here's one of the most important elements is that it's quadruple toxin screened for purity. Teas can be one of the most contaminated entities. Unfortunately, there's so many great benefits to extract from a variety of teas out there, but the industry is just not very well regulated. And there's a lot of toxicants coming through in teas and even microplastics and heavy metals, obviously pesticides and herbicides. You can circumvent that by going organic, but you're still going to run into the potential with heavy metal contaminants and also microplastics. But Sun Goddess Matcha Green Tea, again, is quadruple toxin screened for purity. No added sugar, preservatives, nothing artificial. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com forward slash model. You get 10% off the Sun Goddess Matcha Green Tea. And also their other incredible varieties, award-winning teas and tea flavors over at Peak Life. Again, go to peaklife.com forward slash model for 10% off store-wide. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, This is a Fun Podcast by Conscious Marketing and PR. This is a fun podcast. I love the diversity of topics. Each episode is an opportunity to learn and explore a new thing that helps transform your health and wellness to the better. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. Truly does mean a lot. And if you have to do so, pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the Model Health Show. And on that note, let's get into this powerful conversation, compilation of conversations with Dr. Daniel Amen. Now, in this first segment, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Dr. Amen, and he's going to share the fundamental flaw in the field of psychiatry and mental health. And you're also going to discover the critical connection between mental health and brain health. You'll also learn about the importance of blood flow to the brain in essential ways to improve it, plus a whole lot more. So without further ado, let's get into this first segment from this powerful conversation that I had with Dr. Daniel Amen. You know, when I decided to become a psychiatrist, I hated the term mental illness because I thought it's so bad that nobody would want it. It's like you lose your mind and it completely ignores the organ of behavior, which is the brain. And when I started looking at the brain, I'm like, oh, these aren't mental their brain. And when you get your brain right, your mind follows. Mm. And then I had this great case early on when I started imaging. Um, he called himself the anger broker of the Sacramento Valley. And I saw him after he got out of a psychiatric hospital for a suicide attempt. His wife left him because he was abusive. And, and he was mean to me, mean to my staff. And I just started scanning people. And I told him on my third visit, I'm like, you need to go get scanned and you have to pay for it because I'm not going to treat you unless I understand what's going on because I need to get you better quickly because you're mean. 
And I don't like people being mean to my staff. It's like these people are my family. And he went and he had damage to the left side of his brain. And I'm like, do you ever have a brain injury? And he said, no. And I learned quickly, um, are you sure? And so I asked him 10 times and riding a bicycle down the Rocky Mountains, he crashed and broke his helmet on the left side. And I'm like, oh. And I put him on a combination of medicines targeted to his brain. And within three months, he's the nicest person. I mean, he brings flowers to my staff. He's bringing candy before I knew that was really a weapon of mass destruction. But um, get your brain right and you're kinder. You're more loving. You're more thoughtful. So his wife had no idea. She just thought he was dealing with a jerk when he was brain damaged. And when I got his brain better, he was more loving, more thoughtful. And so I'm opposed to the whole, you have a mental illness. What the hell does that mean? It's like you have a brain illness. And if I get your brain better, you're better. Your brain is the most oxygen-hungry organ in the body. It's 2% of your body's weight for most people, but it uses 20 to 30% of the calories you consume, of the blood flow, of the oxygen. And any deprivation state can give you learning problems, can give you ADHD, can give you emotional problems. And people aren't thinking about it because they don't look. They look at your behavior. So I'm also a child psychiatrist. And during my training, no one ever talked to us about the brain. That's insane. It's insane. Totally insane. And so I just want to plant that seed for people, for parents, for uh, other family members, for yourself, that, and you know, adult ADHD is a big growing thing today as well. And your behavior doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with you as a person, because we look at it as a character defect versus there might be something wrong with your brain. And if you could talk about how do you get in there and take a peek with the SPECT imaging, what does that tell us? So when, when I was in the Army, so I was in the Army twice, once as an enlisted soldier and then as an officer, I ended up being the chief psychiatrist at Fort Irwin. It's in the middle of the Mojave Desert. <laughs> and there I learned biofeedback, which is I can use instruments to measure your body and then teach you how to change them. Like I can teach you how to warm your hands or relax your muscles or breathe with your diaphragm, all very helpful. But I learned about quantitative EEG where I could look at the electrical activity in your brain. And then once I knew your signature, I could change it. So I got really excited about imaging around 1987, 1988. But in 1991, I went to a lecture on brain SPECT imaging. SPECT looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how your brain works. And it gives you these beautiful 3D images of brain function. And so I just got obsessed with it. And I really literally started scanning everybody I knew because I came to realize, how the heck do I know what's going on in your brain? unless I look at it. And SPEC basically tells you three things, good activity, too little or too much. And then my job becomes 
balancing your brain because if it's working too hard, you want to calm it down. If it works too hard, you can be anxious, you can be irritable, you can be rigid and inflexible. And if things don't go your way, you get upset. Or if it's not working hard enough, you have brain fog, you're impulsive, um, you don't make good decisions, you can't focus. And so I'm always working to balance someone's brain. But I want the image. I mean, I'm treating this one woman and I just adore her. And her brain was a disaster when I met her because she grew up around a toxic chemical plant. And yes, she had emotional trauma. And yes, there was psychological work to do, but imagine it like hardware and software. If the hardware doesn't work right in a computer, you can't program it. And so she had been going to therapy forever, but it wasn't taking because she didn't have the hardware, the brain function to take care of it. So using things like hyperbaric oxygen and supplements and um, really working on getting the organ healthy then gave her the opportunity that psychotherapy would have a lasting positive impact for her. So I'm never opposed to psychotherapy. I'm not opposed to psychiatric drugs. I'm just opposed to doing all of that in the dark and calling it a mental illness that shames people. So when I told my dad in 1979 I wanted to be a psychiatrist, he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor, <laughs> why I wanted to be a nut doctor or hang out with nuts all day long. And my dad would never get Father of the Year award. Um, but 40 years later, I sort of get why he said that, because we don't act like real doctors. I mean, I do know of any medical specialist that never looks at the organ they treat and they end up putting you on powerful medications um, in the dark. So I'm in a new docu-series with Justin Bieber. So he has a new series on YouTube yep, called yeah. Seasons. Seasons yeah. And I'm in episode five as his brand health doctor. So I've been a psychiatrist for five years. And he, when he first came to me, another doctor diagnosed him with bipolar disorder and put him on lithium. And when I looked at him, I'm like, he doesn't have bipolar disorder. His brain's sleepy. He has terrible ADD. And he has a left temporal lobe problem. And it came out that he also had an infection like Lyme that was attacking his brain. And so if you don't really see the big picture, easy, especially for someone like Justin to call him bad, to call him spoiled, and you do that with rock stars, but he's not bad. He was damaged. And through the program, he's just better than he's ever been. You know, true story. I was watching Seasons last night for the first time, and I didn't know that there was this connection. And you can see also the change in his demeanor, in his communication, in his behavior. And we just attributed to, oh, he's just maturing. but he was actually getting his, his brain healthy. That's amazing. Oh, no, the darkness that that poor boy went through. And, and often the issues we have, they're not ours. They're our parents or our grandparents. He, mother was a single mother when she got pregnant with him. And she went to live at the Salvation Army because the grandparents were pretty unhappy with her. Um, 
And she was a child when she had him, and she was in a conflicted relationship with the dad. So he's basically bathed, born in stress hormones. And then he played hockey. There were concussions. There's early drug drug use. I mean, it, from a brain health perspective, it's a disaster. And fame wears out the pleasure centers in the oh, brain, yeah. Yeah. which puts people at risk for substance abuse and high-risk behaviors. So, yes, it's taken a while to get him back, but it's possible. I mean, how exciting is that, that you're not stuck with the brain you have? And I have five of his scans, and you could just see them progressively get better. You're getting close to 200,000 scans. What? A, incredible. I mean, it's by far the biggest database but it's really, again, shifting the conversation. You're in a position where you can shift the conversation and say mental illness and the stigma attached to that, psych psychiatric disorders, the stigma attached to that, it's brain health. That's what we need to move the conversation to. That's what we need to talk about. Um, and one of the things that you highlight in the book are personality types. Like what is your brain's personality type? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, one of the things I, one of the first things I learned is everybody's brain's different. Mm -hmm. And my first book on types was on ADD. It's like ADD is not one thing, it's seven things. Stop calling it one thing because stimulants help two of the seven types and they make five of the seven types worse. Um, and then I wrote a book called Change Your Brain, Change Your Body, which was a big bestseller. And I'm like, obesity is not one thing. They're impulsive overeaters, compulsive overeaters, sad overeaters, anxious overeaters know their brain type and you can help them get their bodies right. And then I realized, well, all of us have our own type. And in the book I talk about, there's the balanced brain type, the spontaneous brain types, my ADD group, my persistent brain types, my OCD group. Um, the cautious, was me when I was growing up, or the anxious group, or the sensitive type, the sad group. And there are really 16 different types. Knowing your type can lead you to the right strategies to optimize your life and know if you're spontaneous but your boss is persistent, there's certain things to balance out. Or what's common is the husband's spontaneous and the wife is persistent, and it causes no end of trouble at home. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, and we don't even know it's happening though. That's the crazy part. Nobody thinks about their brain. Yeah. Why? Because you can't see it. You can see the wrinkles in your skin or the fat around your belly and you can do something when you're unhappy with it. But because nobody looks at their brain, it's just not part of the conversation. And it needs to be because your brain runs everything. It controls how you think, how you feel, how you act, how you get along in your marriage, what kind of father you are, what kind of business person you are. And if you don't take care of it, you begin to make poor decisions because your brain is the organ of every decision you make. And so, and you know this, if you don't sleep right, well, your brain doesn't work right. And then your decisions the next day, including how you talk to your spouse, 
are, are not as good as they could be, which then has a snowball effect of negativity. You've put together this protocol, uh, the Bright Minds, and are targeting these specific things that you know are proven to work. Again, tens of thousands of patients, hundreds of thousands of scans almost. I think you're getting close to 200,000. And um, this, for me, was really eye-opening because it's so simple, but I think we overlook so many pieces of this. So I want to go through some of these. And this is an acronym, Bright Minds. And the first one, the B, is blood flow. And that's something that you can actually take a peek at and see where the, the circulation is happening in the brain. Yeah, and SPECT is a study that looks at blood flow and activity. And so why is blood important? It brings nutrients, but equally important, it takes away toxins. So if you don't have healthy blood flow to your brain or any organ, really, it prematurely ages that organ because it can't get rid of the toxins. And so, so how do you know if you have low blood flow to your brain if you don't get a scan, if you have hypertension, high blood pressure? And 60% of Americans are either hypertensive or prehypertensive. If you have any form of heart disease, if you're sedentary, if you have erectile dysfunction, and it's like 40% of 40-year-old men have erectile dysfunction, 70% of 70-year-old men have erectile dysfunction, which means 40% of 40-year-old men have brain dysfunction and 70% of 70-year-old men have brain dysfunction because if you have blood flow problems anywhere, it likely means they're everywhere. And in the book, you know, I have these checklists. Well, how do you know if you have blood flow issues? And then, well, what do you do? You exercise. Walk like you're late, 45 minutes, four or five times a week, lift weights, twice a week. I mean, keep it simple. And then I talk about racket sports because people who play racket sports live longer than everybody else. People who play football and soccer live less long than anybody else, but because of the head trauma, but racket sports because they activate the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is this cool Cerebellum is Latin for little brain. It's about 10% of the brain's volume in the back bottom part of the brain, but it has 50% of the brain's neurons. And it's like the CPU, the central processing unit of the brain. And when it's not right, the rest of your brain doesn't work right. So coordination exercises, my favorite is table tennis, um, can really help. And then there are foods, foods like beets increase blood flow. Cayenne pepper increases blood flow. Oregano, rosemary, cinnamon, all have been shown to increase blood flow. Supplements like ginkgo and venpositine can increase blood flow. So none of this is hard. Know which of the risk factors you have and then just choose to do one thing for them because you love yourself right? I mean, do, getting well is never about, I should do this, I shouldn't do that. It's, it's a sign of how much you love yourself. I love that. I love that so much. Simple things, we can all add in one or two of those things. And I definitely, I think you'd agree, the biggest thing here is the movement. You know, like our brain, our, our genes expect us to walk, you know, and it's, I get into this conversation we can do some amazing things with the human body. We could do all these different flips and we could you know, squat hundreds of pounds. But what are we really designed to do? We're designed to walk. 
And walking elicits so many benefits. And one of those is like helping to normalize blood pressure, blood sugar, because that's another one of these that we talk about here. Um, so with, with Bright Minds, we've got blood flow, retirement aging, which I want to talk about in a second, but inflammation is the next one, the I. So we'll come back to the R, but let's talk a little bit about inflammation. Because again, that's one of those things, it seems to be invisible, but we do have some markers we can look at. And inflammation can just terrorize our brains. It's a major cause of dementia and depression. Autism. It's also been associated with ADHD and PTSD. Inflammation is a disaster. It comes from the Latin word to set a fire. When you have chronic inflammation, it's like you have a low-level fire in your body destroying your organs. We can measure it with some blood tests like C-reactive protein um, or the omega-3 index. And I actually did a study of 50 consecutive patients who came to our clinic who were not taking fish oil. 49 of them had suboptimal levels of omega-3 fatty acids. A study from the CDC came out and said 97% of Americans were low in omega-3 fatty acids, which you get from fish. Um, now you can get plant sources, but the plant sources like nuts and seeds and avocados, they don't have EPA and DHA, which are the two omega-3s that really work in your brain. And so I'm a huge fan of sustainable fish, but also um, high quality fish oil uh, because it can help put out the fire of inflammation. If your gut's not right, you likely have inflammation because you end up with this thing called leaky gut where things get inside your body that your gut should have protected you from, and that can cause inflammation. You also know if you have inflammation, if you have rosacea, so if you have this redness around your face, or if you have joint pain. And curcumins, is, which come from the spice turmeric, help decrease inflammation. So omega-3 fatty acids help, curcumins help. <clears throat> Another major cause of inflammation is gum disease. When you have periodontal disease, um, it makes it more likely you have systemic inflammation, heart disease, and brain disease. So before I read the research, I didn't really care that much about my teeth. Now I'm a flossing fool because if my gums aren't right, my heart's not right. My brain's not right. So taking care of inflammation. So how do you know if you have it? C-reactive protein, omega-3 index. Do you have joint pain or rosacea? Um, what can I do? I can take omega-3 fatty acids. I can floss. I can um, take probiotics to help my gut heal and be healthy. Yeah. Simple, not hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely want to talk about retirement aging. This is a big one, and I, I didn't think about this one until I read it uh, in the book. So let's talk about that one. So why is this included in the Bright Mind strategy? We all need to pay attention to this. Well, I hate this. You know, I published a study last year on 62,000 scans. It's the largest imaging study ever on how the brain ages. And it's just bad news. <laughs> I mean, as we age, our brain gets less and less active but it doesn't have to. And what we discovered is when you stop learning, your brain starts dying. And so now think about kids who have ADHD or learning 
problems. They don't like school. And the reason they don't like school is because they're not good at it. And so they're like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So lifelong learning doesn't become part of who they are, which then increases their risk of dementia. Um, as we age, we need to be more serious about our health, not less serious. And one of the things I discovered is the scans can actually tell 20 years before you have Alzheimer's disease if you're headed for the dark place. So Lisa Gibbons is a friend of mine. She's a radio television personality. I was on her show a long time. Was it Entertainment Tonight she was on? She was too. on Entertainment Tonight, and then she had her own show. And her mother and grandmother died with Alzheimer's disease. And I start going, you need to come see me. And I love her. I would just love her as a friend. And she's like, no, no. And then about 12 years ago, she went through a divorce and got depressed and she came to see me and her brain was terrible. And I'm like, your brain is headed to where your grandmother and mother's brains went. I said, but it doesn't have to. And she did everything I asked her to. And last year we did a program together and we rescanned her and it's so much better. So would you want a better brain 10 years from now? Who wouldn't, right? I mean, I want mine to be better tomorrow, but you know, I'm 65 now. Do I want a better brain at 75? You bet, because I know what most 75-year-old brains look like, and it's not good news, but you just have to be serious. And the older you get, the more serious you need to be. So we talked about a couple of the pieces of Bright Mind. We talked about blood flow, retirement aging, inflammation. We're not going to go through all of these. You got to pick up the book to go through all of these. Um, but you mentioned, of course, we briefly touched on this earlier, trauma, head trauma can be a big causative agent here. Um, but also it's not just physical trauma, but emotional trauma. You talk about mind storms. So we have the acronym BRIGHT, and then we have MINDS. The M is for mind storms. Let's talk about that one. So it's abnormal electrical activity in the brain, especially in an area called the temporal lobes. and most people don't know about it, but what I discovered early on, if your temporal lobes aren't right, you have mood instability, irritability, temper problems, dark thoughts, come out of the blue for no reason. And actually, anti-seizure medications or the ketogenic diet, which is not good for everyone. It's terrible for people who have OCD. They become more OCD on it. But for people who have these mind storms, it really helps settle them to be healthier, more normal, happier. And, you know, I discovered them from looking, but there was actually a book written in 1980 by Jack Dreyfus, the founder of the famous Dreyfus Mutual Fund, that when he went on an anticonvulsant, his depression went away, his anxiety went away. He said he'd had suicidal thoughts for decades and three days on this medicine, he didn't need his shrink anymore. And I've just, I've had some miraculous cases when I'm like, oh, this is a temporal lobe issue. And Justin, who we talked about, it's one of his risk factors that he had it, whether, you know, it was from the infection he had or the three concussions he had that 
you know, when we stabilize that part of his brain, he just did so much better. And uh, it's just something people don't know about. Is that a psychiatric illness? Absolutely not. It's a brain illness. And so understanding the difference uh, is important. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that we equate, and I know that just on a normal day-to-day basis, we don't think about all the electrical activity happening upstairs. And that's what's creating all of this. Like even the thoughts that we're having, my ability to speak to you right now, it's just this electric mind storm taking place. But we can also have like severe storms if we're in a state of stress, if we're in a state of, um, you know, uh, even a, a lower activity because we're not being stimulated. And so what I want to ask you about is, We've, again, we've touched on this, but I really want to get more of a definitive answer. When we're subjected to being in a stressful environment or growing up in a traumatic environment, how can that actually damage our brain? But changes your brain. Children who grow up in violent homes have the same brain patterns as soldiers in war. Think about that. And when you grow up in an unpredictable environment. So when I was a child psychiatrist, I studied children and grandchildren of alcoholics. My first wife grew up in a very violent alcoholic home. And, and I'm like, why doesn't she like me? <laughs> She's the reason I became a psychiatrist. When I got married when I was a second year medical student. And then a couple of months later, I mean, just a couple of months later, she tried to kill herself. Um, and I brought her to see a wonderful psychiatrist and I came to realize if he helped her, it wouldn't just help her, it helped me, it helped our kids. And, um, and then I found out and I dated her. I talked to this girl every day for three years when we were teenagers and I had no idea her dad was beating her mom, that the police were being called because the secrecy in alcoholic homes is so high. And then I learned that when you grow up in that chronically stressful environment, you learn not to talk, not to trust, and not to feel. And it can have a big negative impact on your relationships. But when I started scanning people who had post-traumatic stress disorder from these um, dysfunctional childhoods, their emotional brain was just lit up. And so as opposed to traumatic brain injury where we see decreases on the scan and PTSD, we see increases in their emotional centers. So their amygdala becomes larger and more sensitized, their hippocampus, um, <clears throat> their cingulate gyrus. So it's a pattern I call the diamond pattern, and I show some scans in the brain of this. And so they end up always watching for the shoe to drop. And my wife, Tana, says um, <clears throat> when she first met me that she didn't trust me because she didn't trust I was nice. I mean, it really took her 18 months. She'd come, she'd go, she'd come, she'd go. She goes, like, nobody's that nice because it didn't fit her experience growing up with people that were unpredictable. So it changes your brain, but it also changes your mindset. Mm, man, so powerful. So powerful. Um, so just jumping forward a little bit here in the acronym MIND, so Bright Minds, 
Uh, so we talked a little bit about mind storms. I want to talk about the D, diabetes. This one is huge. Yes, huge <laughs> in many ways. Um, so why is it important? You know, why would a psychiatrist want to talk about blood sugar and weight? So diabetes is you're either diabetic or pre-diabetic, means your fasting blood sugar is high, or and or you're overweight or obese. According to a new study from the Journal of the American Medical Association, 50% of the American population is diabetic or pre-diabetic. Think about that. That means our, and why do you not want a high blood sugar? Because as blood sugar levels go up, it actually begins to erode your blood vessels, making them more brittle and likely to break, which impairs healing. Um, and anybody who's loved someone who died with diabetes, you just know the disaster that it causes. My father-in-law got it when he was 55, and he told me he was going to kill himself if he had to take insulin. Well, he ended up at 60 having to take insulin. He didn't kill himself, but the diabetes killed him. He ended up losing his legs, losing his eyesight, losing his heart, and then losing his mind. You need healthy blood sugar and healthy blood flow. Um, and it's just rampant because of our diets. But what people also don't know, we didn't talk much about the T, the toxins, our toxic load is damaging not only our brain, but also our pancreas that produces insulin to help us. And so putting toxic products on your body, eating foods with pesticides, breathing toxic air, drinking toxic water, and we know that the water in this country is toxic in many, many areas, not just Flint, although um, Flint was a bad, bad example of it. So if we have diabetes escalating at epidemic rates, well, what's happened to obesity? Since 1982, obesity in children was 4%. Now it's 32%. It's gone up 800%. And... Um, you know, when we were growing up, we just don't remember it. But now, 72% of American adults are overweight. 40% of us are obese. And I published two studies that showed as your weight goes up, the actual physical size and function of your brain goes down. And just over the weekend, looking at 20,000 patients, uh, I mapped each area of the brain by, are you underweight, normal weight, overweight, obese, morbidly obese? And there's a linear correlation between weight and blood flow to every region of the brain. Every region of the brain, as your weight went up, the blood flow and activity of your brain went down. And that should just scare us to begin to do the right thing. And the right thing is not Nutrisystems or Jenny Craig and all of that, because a lot of that is fake food. It's to really focus on loving food that loves you back. And people go, but I love donuts. But there's not one healthy thing about donuts. They hurt you. Be Loving donuts is being in an abusive relationship. <laughs> 
And I don't know if we ever talked about the Daniel Plan, this program I did with Mark Hyman and Pastor Rick Warren, where we got Saddleback Church healthy, one of the largest churches in the world. The first week, 15,000 people signed up. The first year, they lost a quarter of a million pounds. But we then wrote a best-selling book, and thousands of churches did that. But right after we started the Daniel Plan, one of the pastor's wives came to my office, and she said, you know, I heard you talk, and I told my husband that night, I'd rather get Alzheimer's disease than give up sugar. <laughs> well, I'm like, well. did you date the bad boys in high school? <laughs> because that's like a bad relationship to be in love with something that damages you. I mean, it's abuse, but we don't think about it. And in the end of mental illness, I love this writing device I, I put in the book where I wrote, if I was an evil ruler, and I wanted to increase the incidence of mental illness in America. What would I do? And there's 62 evil ruler strategies. But one of them is I'd serve donuts at church. Go to church to get your soul fed. These people are trying to kill you. Mm, oh, my goodness. And I literally remember <laughs> growing up and then having donuts at church. And we talked about... I'm a very visual person. Do you, did you like the bad boys? I pictured... Uh, a circle donut pulling up on a motorcycle with two long john legs and a donut whole head and the, and she hopping on the bike and you know it's got the ripped off sleeves anyways I yeah love that. that's a great image. <laughs> um and again we don't think about this we don't think about the relationship and people would come into my office all the time when i was you know doing my clinical work and um and the big thing people would say without even really talking to me is what they don't want to give up right? I don't have to give them my bread, do I? You know, just like all of these different stigmas and how, we don't realize how addicted we are as well. These things can be running our lives. But then for many of these things, there are healthier alternatives or things like you just said, love food that loves you back. There's so much to love that we don't really know about because I grew up in same thing. We grew up in a paradigm where when we look at the store, it seems like there's all this different stuff, but it's really like the same 12 different food items packaged and processed differently. It's like wheat, corn, soy, maybe like throw chicken and some oranges in there. But it's like the same stuff is most of the stuff that we grew up with. We don't know about, there are literally thousands, tens of thousands of different foods. And conversations like this open us up to try new things. And I think it's super important because the diversity and our nutrition helps with the microbiome, helps with, and you also, of course, have been talking about this over the years, but you mentioned the leaky gut. But now we're getting into the situation where I'm hearing this term more and more of leaky brain. Right? Because it's the same thing. So when you say, think of leaky gut, the lining of your intestinal tract, so about 30 feet, is just one single cell layer thick that is protecting you from whatever you eat, actually getting into your body and causing all sorts of havoc. But there's that single cell layer that protects your brain from anything that gets into your bloodstream from getting into your brain, and it's there to protect you. But if you have leaky gut, odds are you also have leaky brain which means your brain's more likely to store toxins, it's more likely to be infected, it's more likely to have big problems. Uh, that's so important. Thank you for sharing that 
because it's a distinction. Many people that listen to this show are aware, have taken action to improve situations with leaky gut. Now you understand that this is affecting your brain too, and it's of the utmost importance. So bright minds, we'll hit one more here. Uh, with minds, we got the last piece of it is S and it's sleep. This is, we were talking about this even before the show uh, and how important this is in creating and sustaining a healthy brain. So why was this part of uh, the bright minds? So teenagers who sleep on average just one hour less than their peers have higher incidence of depression and suicide. When you sleep, your brain cleans and washes itself. And there's this great study. Soldiers who got um, seven hours of sleep at night were 98% accurate on the range. Those same soldiers who got just six hours of sleep at night were 50% accurate on the range. Think about that difference. Five hours, 38% accurate. Four hours, they were dangerous, only 15% accurate. Being sleep-deprived kills more people than alcohol-related accidents. We need to make sleep a priority. And in 1900, on average, Americans got nine hours of sleep at night. Now, in 2020, on average, they get about six hours and 40 minutes of sleep. You can't go through that kind of change in such a short evolutionary period without the expectation there are serious problems being created. Yeah, and evolution takes time. It takes time. Wow. And we have changed so much in the last 120 years with technology and lights where we're being bombarded with lights. And if you just think about, you know, for all of these risk factors and basically for the brain, it's three strategies. Love it. So love your brain, love your blood flow, love your sleep, love your blood sugar, avoid things that hurt it, do things that help it. And so if we think of, well, what's hurting our sleep, it's our gadgets. It's the negative news. Do not watch that before bed. That's not going to give you good dreams. It's actually going to give you nightmares. Um, so it's the gadgets. It's the electromagnetic fields. It's people thinking of alcohol as a health food. Well, it's not a health food. It messes up your microbiome and it decreases the quality of sleep that you have noise, caffeine. And if I was an evil ruler, I would create a culture where you have to have caffeine in the morning to wake up and alcohol at night to go to sleep. And that's the culture we have that's just damaging our sleep, which then damages our brain. Plus, as your weight goes up, you're more likely to have sleep apnea. And we saw sleep apnea actually triples the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And we can actually see it on scans. Your parietal lobes, top back part of your brain, are decreased in our patients who have sleep apnea. So I can often go, oh, I bet you have sleep apnea. You need to get a sleep study and you need to take care of that. Yeah. Wow, that is scary stuff. Um, addressing bright minds and expanding the conversation, you also talk about, you had a section looking at mind meds versus nutraceuticals. And I, again, I love your approach. This was my thinking as well, which is everything is an option, but we have to find the right stuff for you. You know, some medications can be life-changing and saving for people. Whereas a lot of times simply addressing nutrition, lifestyle factors, 
these nutraceuticals can make miraculous changes, seemingly miraculous changes as well. So let's talk a little bit about that, mind meds versus nutraceuticals. So I'm a well-trained psychiatrist. I'm board certified in general psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and I'm not opposed to medication. I'm completely opposed to how it's prescribed in the United States now. 85% of psychiatric medications are prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians in seven-minute office visits, by family practice doctors, pediatricians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, internists, gynecologists. And once you start these medications, they're insidious in that they change your chemistry to need them in order for you to feel normal. So... In, in the book, I go, okay, if you have ADHD, what are the 10 things you should do before you go on a stimulant medication? If you have anxiety disorders, what are the 10 things you should do before you start taking a benzo, which will be very hard for you to stop? If you have depression what, or an addiction or you have insomnia, what are the things to do before you go on medication? So, for example, with anxiety disorders, people don't know that things like Klonopin and Xanax they actually increase the risk of dementia later in life. Not only that, they're addictive. That, you know, once you start them, you're going to have trouble stopping them and you're going to have to take more and more to get the same result. So, well, how about we first have to check your thyroid because you're hyperthyroid, you're going to be anxious. We need to check your blood sugar because if you have low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, you're more likely to have panic attacks. With Justin, I actually caught him with a very low blood sugar level. And I'm like, buddy, you got to eat four or five times a day, healthy food. I mean, it was a big discussion for us. Um, I'm going to teach you to breathe diaphragmatically. I'm going to teach you to meditate. I'm going to teach you to exercise. I'm going to give you GABA, magnesium, theanine, all never hurt you scientific evidence they may help you. And that one chapter alone, so the whole book has 1,084 scientific references. So if you think I just sort of pulled this out of the air, it is the best referenced work of my life. And in that one chapter alone is 286 references. And I go, so what has A-level scientific evidence? Because so often the physician knee-jerk reactions, there's no science behind supplements. And of course, my response is, do you read? Because <laughs> there's all sorts of science. Yeah. You just haven't bothered to look at it. And so there are 286 references. So what has A-level scientific evidence for depression? Saffron. The world's most expensive spice has antidepressant qualities. There's 20 studies, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, saffron, SAMI, omega-3 fatty acids, St. John's wort. Um, what has A-level scientific evidence for anxiety? Magnesium. I mean, how simple is that? Plus 80% of us are low yeah, deficient, in yeah. magnesium. So simple, so simple and important. Okay, um, I, think I wanna ask you so many different things, but I wanna make sure that I talk about the four circles of the Bright Minds program because it's, it's an encompassing thing and these four circles are, are really important to pay attention to. So let's go through those. So Bright Minds really fits in the first circle, which is the biology. Um, when I was a medical student, our dean, like the first week of medical school, he goes, I never want you to think of your patients as their diagnosis. 
always think of people in these four big circles. And he went to the blackboard and he drew the first one and he put biology, which for me is what does your brain look like? The actual physical functioning of your brain and your body. And then he drew the second circle and said, psychology, everybody's got a mind. What's their mind? And over time, I realized that's your development. So what did you grow up in? You know, like my first wife, did you grow up in an alcoholic home or like a dad with like mine? And that matters. Your development really does matter. And I also put your moment by moment thoughts and the quality of your thoughts. And I call the negative ones ants, automatic negative thoughts, the thoughts that come into your mind automatically and ruin your day. And we live in an undisciplined thinking society. So we're loaded with the ants. So I teach people how to develop an internal anteater to get rid of the bad thoughts. The next circle is the social circle. It's who do you hang out with? Um, and what are your current stresses? But you become, and you know this, like the people you spend time with. If you want to do anything great in life, find somebody who's doing it and make them your friend. <laughs> find a way to be of service to that person because you become like the people you spend time with. And then the last circle, he wrote spiritual. Now, I went to a Christian medical school. I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I love that. I learned medicine in the context of my faith. But all of us have a spiritual circle, whether we admit it or not. And the spiritual circle is, why are you on the planet? What is your deepest sense of meaning and purpose? And I do it in... Um, organize it like a cross. So it's my relationship with the past. So for me, it's my grandfather um, that was so important to me. Um, my The future, my grandbabies, my relationship with God, and my relationship with the planet. And it's basically, I ask all of my patients the same question. Why are you here? And what does your life mean? Because if you're purposeful, you live longer. Your brain is sharper. You recover from things like depression faster. But so many people these days, they're really living for themselves and not, they don't have any idea where they fit in the context of this world. So I was invited to the White House to talk about mental illness in America, the opiate epidemic, and they knew, you know, I've been on public television a lot. My shows have run over 110,000 times across North America. And I love when you got to see one of my shows. Um, and they said, so what's the big idea? The end of mental illness begins with a revolution in brain health. That if you want to get on top of the opiate epidemic, you have to teach people to love their brains so they make better decisions. If you want to get on top of homelessness, it's brain health that get their brains right and they can keep their jobs and they can find a place to live that's not on the street. Did you know that 50% of homeless people had a significant brain injury before they were homeless? It's 
if we're going to solve these epidemic challenges of incarceration at levels that are just insane um, and addiction, it starts by falling in love and optimizing the physical functioning of the brain. The end of mental illness begins with a revolution in brain health. All right, I hope that you're enjoying this conversation so far. Truly, truly powerful stuff. And we're just scratching the surface. Now, I want to emphasize a really important point that our lifestyle factors, again, have such an impact on our mental well-being, our practices of movement, our sleep hygiene, and of course, our nutrition. And there are certain nutrients and nutrient sources that just have remarkable benefits that are beyond any of the kind of ordinary foods that we see out there. Now, not to say that they don't have their place, but there are foods in a category of, quote, superfoods that truly have cognitive benefits that are just unmatched. One of those foods comes from bees, and it's known as royal jelly. A study that was published in Advanced Biomedical Research found that royal jelly has a potential to improve spatial learning, improve attention, and to improve our memory. In addition, royal jelly has been found to facilitate the differentiation of all types of our brain cells and to top it off, researchers in Japan discovered that royal jelly has the potential to stimulate neurogenesis in the hippocampus. It's the memory center of our brain to be able to stimulate the creation of new brain cells. Very few foods have been uncovered that have this direct capacity to do something like that. Now, before the show today and before most shows, I actually have royal jelly combined with one of my other favorite cognitive boosters called Bacopa. Now, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trial, this was published in 2016, found that after just six weeks of use, Bacopa significantly improved speed of visual information processing, learning rate, memory consolidation, and even decreased anxiety in study participants. This combination is coming from Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model and get 20 5% off of this incredible formula. It's called Be Smart. All right, that's beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model. Again, 25% off, automatically taken off at checkout. And the reason that beekeepers is so far and away the best place to get even their, their superfood honey is out of this world is because they do third-party testing for over 70 pesticide residues that are commonly found in bee products, specifically making sure that there's no pervasive offenders like DDT, like heavy metals, like E. coli. They're making sure that you have the highest quality honey and royal jelly possible. So head over there, check them out. That's beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. And also have a look at their propolis spray as well. It's one of my other favorite things. 25% off. And now let's get back to this second segment with Dr. Daniel Amen. So this is from another conversation and it's highlighting a sobering overview of our society's current state of mental health. Plus, we're going to be talking about specific brain activity associated with happiness. There's so much focused on disease and degradation and functionality of the brain associated with disease and mental illness. But what does a healthy, happy brain look like? And what are some of the things that we can do to help to support 
dysfunctionality and get our brain happy. And also we're going to be talking about things that reduce activity or even damage areas of the brain associated with happiness. You'll also find out about specific brain types and which brain type you likely have. Also, he's going to share his very important insights about the pandemic and how it was handled so that we can be more empowered moving forward. So let's jump into this next segment with the amazing Dr. Daniel Amen. So before the pandemic, we were at epidemic levels of anxiety, depression, ADHD, addictions, uh, the opioid epidemic, for example. Depression was at eight and a half percent of the population. And then the pandemic hit. And by August of 2020, it was at 28% of the population. It had more than tripled. So not since the Great Depression has there been this level of unhappiness. And as I saw that, I'm like, but you can learn to be happy. Whatever situation you're in, you just have to know the neuroscience of it because happiness is ultimately a brain function. And as, as I was tackling this, I came across a video that I just love by Dennis Prager called Why Be Happy. And in it, he says, happiness is a moral obligation. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I grew up Roman Catholic. And I went to Catholic school, a Catholic high school, and I guarantee you that idea that happiness is a moral obligation was nowhere to be found, that it was about guilt and control and shame. And then it's like, so why is it a moral obligation? Because of how you impact other people. I guarantee you, and you know about this, if you're raised by an unhappy parent, or married to an unhappy spouse. And you ask somebody, is happiness an ethical issue? And I guarantee you they're gonna say yes. And so what we're talking about is not fluff. It's critical and central, and ultimately it's what everybody wants. But they don't know how to do it. And in the book, in the opening, I start with the lies of happiness. Like more of something will make you happier. And, and I have a number one New York Times bestselling book. Another one's not going to make me happier. That ultimately happiness is in the little things that happen day in and day out. That hedonism is the enemy of happiness because it wears out your pleasure centers. Mm. So that's hedonic adaptation. So the brain is, like you just said, you already hit number one New York Times. There isn't like a number above one, unless you're just like, I want all of them. I want all the spots, <laughs> you know? And some people think like that, you know? And you've seen this, and I know that I've seen this as well, when folks, you know, they, they win the championship or they achieve that highest level in whatever it is that they're doing and then they they sink they kind of lose themselves and it's because the brain gets acclimated to that high 
even the things that the pleasure things that we seek today, I would imagine, like if we're, you know, whether people are utilizing technology or porn or whatever the case might be, you constantly need more and more and more to have that same level of normalcy in a sense. Does that is that accurate? Well, there's an area in your brain. So there's a new there's a neuroscience in happiness. And the area in your brain that feels pleasure is called the nucleus accumbens. And it responds to a number of neurotransmitters, but primarily dopamine. And when dopamine hits it, you go, oh, I like that. But if it hits it too strong, cocaine, or too often, addiction, it wears it out and then you need to engage in that behavior not to feel high, but to feel okay. And this is why fame is a disaster for the brain. And I've been blessed, I'm in Justin Bieber's docu-series Seasons to be his doctor, um, and Miley Cyrus, and I adore these kids. But what happened to them is just a disaster for brain function, that they get so much cool stuff right, from money and drugs and notoriety. fame and notoriety and anything they want, but doesn't make them happy. In fact, it makes them sad. And they don't know that we have to protect them rather than, like Justin was on tour and he had to, had to end it early because everything around the fame was then making it worse. So not sleeping, overworking, video games, bad food, drugs, all the girl, you know, it's like everything to wear out that part of your brain and you just end up feeling awful and people go, but you have everything but not a healthy brain. Yeah, that's powerful. So the neuroscience, so what would a healthy brain look like from a neuroscience perspective? So I did a study for this book uh, where I gave 500 consecutive patients Damon Clinic's The Oxford Happiness Questionnaire. And then I scanned them, because that's what we do at Amen Clinics. I now have 10 clinics around the country. And we looked at people at high happiness scores versus low happiness scores. And you had better frontal lobe function if you were in the high happiness group. And you had low frontal lobe function in the low happiness group, which means don't let children hit soccer balls with their foreheads. That's a really bad idea. Marijuana is not a health food because it drops blood flow to the brain. Alcohol is not a health food because it drops blood flow. And if you have low blood flow to your front part of your brain, you end up making impulsive decisions that damage your relationship, less happiness. Mm. Oh man, so these exposures, so the, the prefrontal cortex is, uh, is gonna be more correlated with happiness? Is that what I'm hearing? Good activity Good in activity. the prefrontal cortex is associated with happiness. And low activity is associated with depression. Is there such thing as a cohesive brain versus a brain that's gonna be, have a tendency towards um, lack of focus or unhappiness or can you see these states when you look at somebody's brain? Well, you can clearly see the state of the brain. You can clearly see how healthy 
or not. It is. So when I first started doing imaging, I scanned everybody I knew. And I scanned my mom when she was 60. She had a stunningly beautiful brain, full, even, symmetrical. And it reflected her life. She has seven children, 54 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She knows everybody's birthday. She's everybody's best friend. She knows about their lives. I mean, she's, and she's 90 now. I mean, it's just stunning. And then I scanned myself, and it wasn't healthy because I played football like you. I played football in high school, and, and I had a lot of bad habits. I was overweight. I was eating a lot of fast food. I wasn't sleeping. Um, and here I am, a double board-certified psychiatrist. This is 1991. I'm board-certified in general psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry. I don't care about my own brain at all because I'd never seen it. And when I looked at it, I became horrified, and I developed a concept I call brain envy. Freud was wrong. Penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problem. Not seen it once. What you really, you know, I wanted her brain. I had brain envy. And we have a foundation, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life Foundation, and it makes t-shirts. And on the back it says Freud was wrong, and the front says it's the brain. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we love that. And when you see it, and then you correlate happiness to brain function, it's you want a better brain. Mm, yeah. And if you want to be happy, the foundational secret, because there's a lot of books on happiness, but none of them talk about the foundational secret to happiness is your brain. With a healthy brain, you're much more likely to be happy. You start the book right off with this and talking about these lies of happiness and just that part in and of itself, because that's where I saw also the hedonic adaptation. But I think this is important because even though we want to be happy as an as a individual, I don't think we often think about what that means for us. And it's individual. That's one of the things that jumped out at me immediately because my brain, what the ingredients for happiness is, is different for me than what it's gonna be for you or anyone else. So let's talk a little bit about that, that everybody's brain is gonna be looking for the same ingredients for happiness because for us, it's going to be unique. So, so the book is based on the seven neuroscience secrets of happiness that very few people talk about or know. And like brain health is foundational. And each of these secrets has a question. So every day I want you to just ask yourself what you're doing. It's good for my brain or bad for it? It's good for my brain or bad for it? If you can answer that with information and love, love of yourself, love of your kids, love of your wife, you just start making better decisions. The next one is, well, happiness is different for everybody based on how their brain works. There's the balanced brain type, mostly anything will make them happy. There's the spontaneous brain type. They need novelty. They need excitement. They need stimulation. They like jumping out of airplanes. They like helicopter skiing. They like scary movies because it gives them a dopamine rush. Take a cautious brain type, they hate 
the idea of jumping out of an airplane. That'll just make them miserable. Um, they don't like scary movies. I don't. I don't like scary movies. You know, I went and saw Amityville Horror, and it, like gave me nightmares for weeks. I'm like, no, no. Life is you just watch the news. That's horrible right. enough. <laughs> um, there's the persistent brain type. They hold on to things. They loop on things. They love ritual. So for example, even choosing your religion, which I find this really interesting. Uh, the spontaneous type is not going to choose becoming Catholic or Lutheran because it's boring for them. I mean, it's like the same thing over and over again. Um, they're going to like go to a Pentecostal church or to a non-denominational church with great music and great sermons, keeps their attention. But if you're the persistent brain type, you become Catholic or you become, you know, something that has ritual where you just know what to expect. The spontaneous person loves surprises. The persistent person hates surprises uh, because they like it when things go as they expect. And when things don't go as they expect, they often can have tantrums. Uh, and then there's the sensitive type. Uh, and the pandemic was the worst for that group because they need connection. They're deeply empathic. And the isolation just drove drinking and drug abuse and depression for that type. And then the cautious type. And you can always tell what their brain type is by how early they are for their appointments. The person that's balanced, they're on time. The person who's spontaneous is five or 10 minutes late. The persistent person is on time. The cautious person is 10 minutes early. Mm. Mm. This is so <laughs> fascinating. And then to get a peek at people's brain to affirm these things, it's just really remarkable. So I got a question just specifically about the persistence type. Would there be more activity in a certain part of the brain that you would see? Where would that be? In the anterior cingulate gyrus. So in the front, deep in the frontal lobes is a brain's gear shifter. It allows you to go from thought to thought, move from idea to idea. Be flexible, go with the flow. But when it works too hard in my studies, they tend to be argumentative, oppositional, and if things don't go their way, they get upset. And so I had this one guy tell the story in the book. He was head of the Alzheimer's Association here in Orange County, where I live. And he wanted to learn more about my work. And so he came and got scanned. And as I sat down with him, I said, tell me about yourself. And he said, no, I don't want to say anything about myself. I want you to tell me about myself from my scan. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. We always take your scan and put it in the context of your life. And he's like, no. So right away I knew he was the persistent brain type. But when you saw his scan, his frontal lobes worked way too hard. Mm -hmm. And so in front of his wife, I go, you're persistent. You're like a dog with a bone. And when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And you're like on time. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. And you're worried and you're rigid. And if things don't go your way, you get upset and you tend to be argumentative and oppositional, and you hold grudges. And his wife went, yes, 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 yes. <laughs>
Wow, this is like... Which is why when I met Tana, you know Tana, my wife, um, I really liked her. Like, she's beautiful and she's smart and... Um, three weeks later, I'm like, you haven't seen the clinic. Don't you want to see the clinic? Because I needed to scan her. Because I'm not going to fall in love with her unless I knew what her brain looked like. <laughs> Got to see that brain. That's, that, this is smart. What, what if that was a prerequisite? You know, when you go to get your marriage license, you get a brain scan. So you know what's actually happening behind the curtain. Because oftentimes in relationships, you meet somebody's representative. You don't really meet them. I like that. I yeah. like how you phrase that. You yeah. meet someone's representative. You know, and this is the thing too, you know, whether even with a job interview, you know, you're meeting a representative of the person and not necessarily who they really are. And humans were very creative at making a facade or an appearance of something. Social media highlights that perfectly, you know, but what if we can actually get more educated, not just for learning about the other pe person, but learning about ourselves. And this is why I was so grateful for the experience today, because for me, it's not that I'm necessarily trying to fix something, which a lot of people are. They want to fix different things that they're struggling with. I want to be as good as I possibly can be, you know, and we lie to ourselves even with that and how good we're doing. So this leads to another lie which we're outsourcing our emotions to people who are profiting from us. And one of those is like fast food restaurants, for example. You know, you, it hit me like a ton of bricks reading the, the book. It's called a happy meal. It's literally called a happy meal. I mean, damn, if that's not marketing, like powerful marketing, that I definitely fell into. Because for me, I had a birthday. I, I share with you when we're doing the brain scan, that my, I lived with my grandmother. It was one of the happiest times of my life. That was my first time having a Happy Meal, by the way. There was a McDonald's. There was only one fast food restaurant that was close to us. It was a McDonald's, and they had a, in, they had a playground inside. I had a birthday party there. I'll never forget that. It was like, of course, you got the ball pit. Without a doubt, you know, you're going to lose a kid or somebody's going to throw up or whatever in there. Um, but just thinking about the characters of McDonald's, they're all... It, they've got the Happy Meal, but the rest of them are really dark. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Ronald McDonald, first of all, Dr. Amen, it's a clown. I don't know. No disrespect to clowns, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure most people are a little freaked out by clowns. And then you've got Grimace. His name literally denotes pain. He's this big, overweight, purple guy. We don't even know what he is. And then we got the Hamburglar. He's a convicted criminal. You know, like these, all these sketchy characters, <laughs> but they're telling you like, this is the way to happiness. You know, it's a smile, you know, and um, this happy meal. So is it true? Is it a happy meal or should we be calling it something else? It's a lie. It's a sad meal because of the low quality food that increases inflammation and vulnerability to depression. And Coca-Cola is the same way. You know, their slogan is open happiness. And it should be open illness, open diabetes, open obesity, open depression, open heart disease, open cancer. But that wouldn't sell. And with, without real thought behind what you put in your body, you are making other people rich 
based on your early death. And that's not happiness. And secret number four is love food that loves you back. And too often people go, but I love sugar. Too many people, they're attached to alcohol, they're attached to pizza, they're attached to ice cream, um, but it hurts them. And, um, you know, I was in a marriage for 20 years that was awful, it was just awful. That's um, why I became a psychiatrist. And I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not doing bad. I'm married to my best friend. Uh, we're respectful to each other, affectionate. And I'm damn sure not doing it with food that I can control what I put in my body and I only want it to love me, not hurt me. Why do we allow McDonald's to do it to us then? Because we don't know. We are blind. In my book, The End of Mental Illness, I have a writing device that if I was an evil ruler and I wanted to create mental illness, what would I do? I'd create American society with fast food restaurants everywhere, with food deserts, with this notion that alcohol is a health food or marijuana is innocuous uh, or the news is in fact the news because the news is not the news. The news is a marketing device for advertisers to make money and they scare you where millions of amazing things happened yesterday, but you never hear about them because they don't get eyeballs. Fear is a primitive response. The brain pays attention to fear first, and so they scare you. And in that way, they can sell you the medications that have this laundry list of side effects. Yeah, it's such a twisted system. I was just talking about this recently, but you know, the United States and New Zealand are the only you know, high-income nations that allow uh, television marketing or just, period, direct-to-consumer marketing of drugs. It's a very abnormal thing, and coincidentally, of course, we're the most drug nation in the history of the world, really. And I want to ask you about this, too, because you mentioned things were already trending upward at a shocking rate. We're almost at about one out of 10, essentially one out of 10 of our citizens having depression prior to the pandemic hitting the scene and then things doubling, tripling. This was already a big issue. And the ingredients here, because I think this is so important because I sent you this study. Let's talk about this. I sent you this study yesterday and it was a big study done by the CDC and they were looking at what the biggest risk factors for death from COVID was. It was over 800 U.S. hospitals, over 540,000 COVID-19 patients. They found that obesity was the number one risk factor for death from COVID, which we knew already. We, we aren't doing anything about it, but we knew that. The second leading risk factor, which was the most shocking for me, that it was published, not that it's a thing because I could see it coming from a mile away as I know you could, the second leading risk factor was anxiety and fear-related disorders. And for me that jumped right out because it really spoke to our tragic state of mental health here in the United States specifically. You know, right now, you know, anxiety, um, depression, ADHD, these things have all been trending up, but it's been heightened. 
and I don't think people make that connection with the news, for example. They, they're very well versed at manipulating human psychology to get eyeballs. And it's not necessarily, and, I, and I, the first thing I wanna ask you about is why, why are we tuned into them? I think it's this concept of like, we need to be informed. But there's a difference between being informed and being inundated or being informed and being controlled or manipulated. You know, there's many ways to be informed, but when you start to feel that they're speaking right to a primitive part of our brain, isn't that right? Can you yeah, talk a little bit about that? I call that? it global amygdala hijacking. So the amygdala is this almond-shaped structure in your brain that responds to fear. And especially with the pandemic, and I think we, a lot of it, we were manipulated purposefully so that we would act like sheep. And in my book, The Brain Warrior's Way, I'm like, I basically ask the question, are you a sheep or are you a sheepdog or are you a wolf? And the wolves were out for the pandemic, frightening us isolating us, separating us from each other. You know, we're a, a connected species. We have to be connected in order to feel okay, in order to feel happy. And they separated us and then stressed us. Businesses went out of business. People lost their job. There was this chronic anxiety and I think the decisions they made killed way more people than COVID did and will continue to kill people for a generation because children's development wasn't normal during that period of time. Now, not for everybody, but as a rule, I, I was horrified. And there's not been a time in the 40 years I've been a psychiatrist where governments have told me what I could prescribe and not prescribe based on my education and training. I was furious, I am furious at the reaction so that they could vaccinate everybody. And, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm like, don't tell me I can't prescribe hydroxychloroquine. I read the studies, I'm educated, and if that's a choice my patient and I choose, that's between us, you need to stay out of it. And they did it for hydroxychloroquine, for ivermectin, um, for fluvoxamine, uh, an antidepressant that actually happened to work to decrease death from COVID. Uh, it was actually pretty effective. Um, that was shocking to me when I saw that study. It's so that interesting. antidepressant, yeah. And, and when you're sad, your immune system doesn't work. Right. And you're more vulnerable. And we've known that for a long time, that there's association between depression and cancer and depression and autoimmune disorders. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a shocking study. And we can do better, but only if we have a voice. And that's the thing that people, this um, politicalization of science, um, it's they shut down doctors who had a different opinion. And I'm like, what about this is not denial of freedom of speech, where you demonize someone who goes, no, I don't like this. Yeah, at this point in human evolution, that's in, the thing. In, in American society, right, we, at this point, 
we think we're so evolved and we've got that stuff figured out. Throw in a little bit of fear, which again, it, it's justifiable fear. And it's just like we devolved. We went backwards so quickly and so I like much. That term. And right in the beginning of the pandemic, because I was online on Instagram like almost every day. And the favorite thing I would tell people is I would read an essay from C.S. Lewis from 1948 that he actually wrote about the atomic bomb. And I'm like, let's just replace COVID-19 where he writes about the atomic bomb. And he said, in many ways, we think a great deal too much about the atomic bomb, COVID-19. When you could have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or you could have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia could land and slit your throat any night. Or as you're already living in an age of car accidents and cancer. And um, he's like, let's not make more of this than it is. If the virus comes, let it find you doing sensible and human things. He would have been furious about the lockdowns, uh, kids wearing masks in school, all, all this stuff. And what I saw as a psychiatrist, families got divided. And that was the worst thing for mental health. They wouldn't see each other at holidays. They would belittle each other. If you didn't believe the way I believe, either side, they, they would cut you off. And, and, and I just saw the media do the same thing, left, right, you know, red, blue. They were demonizing people. And this is the way to create mental illness. Yeah. So who's the big winner? when we create mental illness. The drug companies. Again, it's the drug companies that are the big winners because antidepressant use skyrocket. Benzodiazepines, which you and I both know are bad for the brain, skyrocketed. Um, it's insanity. Yeah. Then we had some uh, shortages as well with antidepressants. Isn't that right? We did for a short period of time. But then they ramped it up. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, and I'm not opposed to it. I prescribe them when I need to, but it's never the first thing I think about. It's like, well, how's your thyroid? And how's your testosterone? And how's your diet? And are you exercising? And do you believe every stupid thing you think? It's like, let's get that right. And then if you need medicine, great. As a supportive tool rather than as the tool. The tool, yeah. That's one of the biggest mistakes. And again, I just hope that we learn from this. As we are right now, I don't think that we are. We're just- Well, I think a lot of people are really unhappy. And even the people that were hiding in their house, I think they're beginning to see, you know, the study from Johns Hopkins came out that said all of these measures, the masks, the lockdowns, shutting down businesses, saved 0.2% of COVID deaths. I'm like, and you know that's not considering suicide and job loss and drug abuse. It's, yeah. And all the other we, things. We that, made mistakes. All the other things that come from that, even when, when somebody is unemployed, they have like a 40% increase in their incidence of having a cardiovascular event. Right. You know, it's just like all of those other things were suddenly not considered. 
It was this one-size-fits-all. And they said that. They said that. You know, Dr. Fauci said that. He's like, I'm only thinking of COVID deaths, that that's outside of my expertise, which is pretty insane when you think about it. A physician should be thinking about everything, not just, will I decrease the spread of the virus? And they didn't decrease the spread of the virus at all. Do you remember the two weeks to flatten the curve? That was like, two, that was literally two years ago. You know, and again, it's this one size fits all approach to things, which nothing, even with COVID, even if that is your goal to stop the spread of COVID, nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything else is going to be influenced in a very dynamic, complex society that we exist in. And even have one size fits all treatments when you, you're not there face to face with that patient, for example. And like you having that, somebody trying to control what you're doing to to serve the person well, in front of you. People got their licenses taken away from them. They got investigated by the medical board. They scared us. There were even editorials like on WebMD that if you do this, these bad things are gonna happen and oh, by the way, you deserve it. Um, there was a lot of control. And, and the dumbest thing the government did, the number one stupid thing they did is they talked about everybody has to be vaccinated and they never talked about you need to lose weight. You need to like eat better. We need to be exercising. Instead, we huddled people in their home afraid and gave them bad food. Yeah. And, and that's frickin' insane. And I'm a psychiatrist, so I diagnose insanity. A lot. This <laughs> so is insane know. that we know having low vitamin D levels associated with higher mortality. We know being overweight, being hypertensive, um, having diabetes. But did we talk at all about let's fix the health problems we have in this country? No, we just created more. And, exactly. you know, just stepping back, it's like, the messaging is just backwards. But it, this is the thing. And I'm so, again, I love talking with you because it's been like this, Dr. Amen. We've been ignoring the underlying cause of issues. We've just been allowing it. You've had your universe. You've been making a huge impact, of course. But it's still a certain version of reality that most of our healthcare system is not invested in. We've been allowing our society to become sicker and sicker. We are literally the sickest nation in the history of recorded human civilization right now. Right. As sophisticated as we appear to be on paper and we look around at the skyscrapers, but we are just but we're not the falling apart. Exactly. I think we're 28th or something among developed countries with the happiest, but you're right. We're the sickest in large part because the politicians are funded by big pharma, big food, big agriculture, and big energy. And you gotta go, how does this make sense? Where there are fast food restaurants everywhere, and the messaging is, in fact, when Bloomberg in New York actually tried to get a health message out, he got shamed by it. He's like, let's not sell 
sodas, over 16 ounces, right? I mean, who needs more than 16 ounces of sugar water? And, you know, it was like big nannies coming for you and they would shame him. I, I used to love being on the subway in New York when Bloomberg was the mayor because they would have these great posters um, about, you know, drink water, not soda. And they would actually have soda turning into a glass of fat. I mean, it was really creative, the messaging. Um, but no, we want our freedom to be as sick as we want to be. The problem is everybody's paying for it right. in, in an awful way. And I don't want to be big nanny. I want to be big teacher. Yeah. I want to go, do you want to be happy? You need to be healthy. Yeah. Because happiness and brain function are connected. Yeah. As you said, we're paying for it, even if we don't realize it. We have a $4 trillion a year healthcare system. $4 trillion. We're so far ahead of any other country, and yet we're but the we're sickest. Not. You know? no, but we're not. Yeah. That's right? again. I mean, we can do great brain surgery, but we're not making any progress in chronic. 75% of that $4 trillion is spent on chronic, preventable yeah. illnesses. And that should horrify people. And we have to start teaching little children. We have a brand new, um, Amen University, my education arm, we have a brand new preschool through grade one course where we teach kids to love their brain. It's called Brain Thrive. And it's done with puppets and super fun and cute. Um, I know McDonald's is going after your children yeah. and Coca-Cola is going after your children. Well, I wanna go after them too but in a way that sustains their health rather than in a way that hurts their health. Yeah. If they're as intelligent, which they are, at doing their job, they're going to be looking for lifetime customers. You know, get them while they're young is kind of the, the tenet. And, you know, especially again, a developing brain is going to be so much more susceptible, I would imagine, to their marketing. Well, that's why God gave you parents. But if you're, you know... Children do what parents do, right? You're modeling health or you're modeling illness. And if you want to be healthy and happy, you have to model health and happiness. So secret number six is notice what you like about other people more than what you don't. I love that one so much because to be happy, you have to give away happiness and you do it like you totally can shape your wife by what you notice. If you only notice what she does wrong, she's going to be unhappy and you're going to shape her to be miserable. But if you really focus on paying attention to what you like, I mean, I know exactly how to get my wife to yell at me. She has, <laughs> she has red hair. She's pretty intense. Um, and I know how to make her smile and want to hold me. And so if I focus on giving away happiness, I'm so much more likely to be happy. That just sounds <laughs> intelligent, you know. But I think, again, we, we don't know that we have that power. And we're, I don't know what it is. And I've got you here, so I'm going to ask you, why, when we know what makes the other person happy, would we pick on or choose to focus on the things that irritate us? 
Well, the spontaneous person plays this game, none of it's conscious, but they play this game called let's have a problem because it stimulates them. The, I often think of ADD as adrenaline deficit disorder. So they're often adrenaline seeking. And you can actually tell when uh, a girl has ADD, a teenage girl, by her dating patterns because they get adrenaline from falling in love and dopamine. And so what you see with them is they fall in love and then they fight because they get adrenaline from fighting and then they break up and there's all that drama, adrenaline with breaking up and then they fall in love and then they cycle through that. So if you see a girl that's doing that, get her scanned because she very well may have ADD that nobody knows. And in my book, Healing ADD, I talk about the games ADD people play. And it's let's have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> That's bananas, but I've seen it before. You know, let's, let's spice things up unconsciously. Unconsciously. Because there's no reason that the person would even consciously want to have a problem. No. Unless they grew up in it. Because the brain doesn't do what's good for it. The brain does what it has done which is why you have to be very careful with what you allow your brain to do. Because once you allow it to do it and it gets dopamine, it's gonna go seek it again, even if it's bad for you. Yeah. Uh, another one of these lies you kind of dissect is focus on technology today, you know? And I didn't even know that there was a thing as, well, of course, I know that people can be addicted to gaming, but now it's like a classified disorder you know, because it could so dominate, take control of somebody's life and their livelihood. But again, we seem so evolved because we've got technology. We've got all these incredible um, tools that we can use. We can create these entirely different universes. But most of it right now has confiscated a, a significant percentage of our focus. I would say, and you put one little statistic that uh, a nice chunk of teenagers, they spend more time on social media than they do even sleeping. Right. That's insane. And these devices were created to be addictive. I mean, there's actually a process that they go through. They hired neuroscientists, and many in Silicon Valley will take a dopamine detox because they know they created these things to hook your attention, just like slot machines in Vegas. And you have to be just very mindful and careful. There's a reason Vegas makes a lot of money, is they understand human psychology. So give someone free alcohol with a cute waitress, with a low-cut dress, and people are not going to be making the best poker decisions. <laughs> and it's the same way with Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. And now, I have 1.2 million followers on TikTok. I figured out, you know, what people are really interested in. But you have to be very careful because it's with a whole bunch of stuff you really don't want your children seeing. A couple of other lies. I, I really want to focus on these because... I think that, again, we are wanting real sustainable happiness and we have um, a, an idea of what that might look like, but I think we often go for short-term pleasures, not necessarily happiness. Is there a distinction with the Hedonism two? is the enemy 
of happiness because it wears out your pleasure centers. So I want you to do things that help you feel good now and later versus now but not later. And that's long-term happiness. And there are habits. So secret number five is master your mind and gain psychological distance from the noise in your head. Um, there's nowhere in school they teach you to manage your mind. How insane is that? Like brain health and mental health should be like English. Remember when we were in school and we had to take English every year? It's like, well, what about brain health? It's more important. What about mental health? It's more important. Um, and so I have all these little tiny habits. Have you ever interviewed BJ Fogg? I have not. I, I was at an event with him. You before. would love him. He's yeah. great. Well, I hired him for six months so that we come up with tiny habits for brain health. And every day, I start the day with today is going to be a great day. It's on the top of my to-do list. And that way I'm like, well, what am I looking forward to today rather than uh, I have to get through this day? When I put, go to bed every night, I say a prayer and then I go, what went well today? And that's my favorite happiness strategy because it's like a treasure hunt where I start at the beginning of the day and I just look for what went well. And the bad things will pop up and I'm like, it's not the point right now. What went well? And I even look for the micro moments of happiness. What's the smallest thing that happened today that made me happy? And it's just, I love that so much. And I remember, and I think you and I talked about this last time I was on, um, about two years ago, my dad died. And he died of COVID and it was terrible. And it was an awful day. And when I went to bed that night, I went, what went well today? Because it's my habit, right? Your brain does what you've done. And, you know, initially I'm like, really, today? But it's my habit. And I thought about an interaction between the police officer and my mother. And it was so funny. And then I thought about all the texts I'd gotten from my friends and how much, how loved I felt. And then I thought about holding my father's hand before they took him away. And it was so soft. And then I went to sleep. And you have to build these habits because even though I grieved for him, still do, still miss him, I went to sleep. And if you want to get over grief, you have to sleep, right? I mean, you would agree with me on that. And it's these little tiny exercises looking for the micro moments of happiness. I have another fun exercise where write down the 20 happiest moments of your life. I actually had one happen last May the Canadian Association of Nuclear Medicine. So my work has been very controversial. I've gotten no end of grief from my colleagues. But last May, the Canadian Association of Nuclear Medicine wrote new procedure guidelines for SPEC as if I wrote them. And of ten, the 10 authors, five of them were my students. So happy. Wow. But I take those 20 happiest moments of my and I plant them around my house. So I make an association in my mind, like my front door is my wedding day and I'm carrying Tana over the threshold and I almost drop her, but that's <laughs> because the night before when we were practicing our wedding dance, I almost dropped her, but it was funny and nobody got a head injury. 
Um, <laughs> that, every time I walk through the door. Plus that reminds me how much I love her, so I'm gonna notice what I like more than what I don't like. And when I go into the living room now, um, it's where I was, got an award from Discover Magazine. One of my research papers was listed as the top science story, neuroscience story for 2015. That's pretty cool. And then I put the Canadian paper there as well. So every time I see my living room, I see happiness. Whenever I go to the kitchen, my grandfather's at the stove. I'm named after him. He was my best friend when I was growing up. He was a candy maker. And we're making brain-healthy hot chocolate. So we used to make fudge together, but I'm like, no, I want you to live longer. It was sad when he died. Um, and so wherever I go in my house, I find happiness. Wow, I love this so much. So uh, just to wrap things up, these we're, we're talking about real sustainable strategies for happiness, which is coming at a premium right now, but I think that all that's taking place is a big opportunity for us to do some of the things that we should have done prior to the pandemic. And it's bringing those things right into a spotlight for us. What do you believe we should all right now, Not this is a one size fits all question by the way, but what do you feel for the majority of us, what should we be focused on right now to learn from what we've experienced as a society so that we're better moving forward? Well, the brain has memory for a reason so that we can be better and we can know what's dangerous. Um, that being controlled as a population is bad for us. That freedom of speech is foundational to a democratic society, to our democratic society. And whenever you see someone being shamed for their position, that's bullying and that's not okay, that you have to stand up even if they don't agree with you. Shutting down speech is wrong. And, and you saw that with the social media platforms. We should have just been furious with that. Um, but let me close with happiness, which is so many good things happened out of the pandemic. Um, I'm a child psychiatrist. I have seen a lack of a vulnerability and bonding between parents and children because we've had two parent working families now for three generations. And parents are tired and, they're, and they're guilty because they don't spend as much time for their kids. With the pandemic, people were at home. There was historic positive levels of bonding going on in families, and that will change the next generation. My, I adopted our two nieces, and right before the pandemic, they came to live with me, and we had like two-hour dinners, and we made dinner together, we cleaned the kitchen together, we talked about abortion, we talked about the death penalty, we talked about everything under the sun, and we will be closer for a generation because of that. So if we can look for the blessings, not just be focused on the curse of it, that will help us be happier. Thank you so very much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. It's such an important part of our own health equation because our mental health does in fact 
impact our physical health and our physical health does in fact impact our mental health. And both of these areas need some serious attention right now in our culture and being able to learn from one of the very best teachers in the world is such a gift. I'm so grateful to be able to share this message with you today and this incredible insights from Dr. Daniel Amen. Please share this episode up with the people that you care about. Of course, you could share this on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode and tag me. I'm at Sean Model, and you could tag Dr. Amen as well. Let him know what you thought about this powerful compilation. And of course, you could send this directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. Sharing is caring. Let's make empowerment and health go viral. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. And we've got some epic masterclasses and powerful world-class guests coming up very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.